Nicholas Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Season 2, Episode 12, 1911-12 vs England, Rumble in the Selection Jungle. This is part two of our episode covering the 1911-12 tour by England. Part one was released previously and covers the first two tests of the five test series. We resume with the series locked at one all. The teams reconvened Adelaide for the third test. The English made no changes to their winning lineup from the previous match. The Australians, who had struggled to create wicket-taking opportunities outside of Horton, made one change. Witty, who had been so effective the previous summer against South Africa, had only taken three wickets at 60 in the first two tests and was dropped. He was replaced by Victorian league-spinning all-rounder Tommy Matthews, who had spent much of the previous summer as 12th man for the test side. He was chosen ahead of McCartney, who Hill was advocating for, but being outvoted by McAllister and Iredale. More tension arose when a telegram from McAllister to Hill, suggesting the latter should be dropped from the side, was leaked, causing even more speculation regarding the ability of the selectors to work together for the success of the Australian test side. Hill won the toss and chose to bat, with Callaway and Bardsley opening for the home side. Bardsley hit the first boundary of the match off Barnes, but both openers were dismissed with the score on six, with Foster clean bowling Callaway before Barnes had Bardsley caught behind. Horton was promoted to three with Ransford coming in afterwards, but when Ransford was on three, he was struck on the thumb by Thoster. After five minutes, he left the field, retiring hurt. Armstrong replaced him with the score at 17. The partnership was a slow one, with Armstrong taking 50 minutes to reach 20, whilst Horton was even more circumspect. The two managed to survive to lunch without further damage, with the total having moved into the 50s. Armstrong was out shortly after the resumption of play, bowled by Foster for 33. He was replaced by Trumper. Horden, who had survived for over 100 minutes, was then out for 25, caught off the bowling of Foster. The Australians were now 4 for 84 as hometown hero Hill arrived at the crease. The hopes of the crowd, though, were dashed when he was stumped second ball for a duck off Foster by a smart piece of keeping from Smith. Later in the same over, Minnett was also dismissed for a duck, with his leg stump sent cartwheeling by Foster, giving the left armour his fifth wicket. Matthews arrived for his debut innings at 6 for 88, with the crowd calling out that they prefer McCartney. He would only manage five runs before Barnes had him caught behind. Seven Australians were now dismissed for 97. Cotter arrived and put Barnes into the grandstand for six, but Barnes had his revenge when he bowled him later in the same over. At this point, Ransford returned, struggling to hold the bat, but the crowd appreciated his bravery. He and Trumper took the score on to 123 before Trumper, who had made 26 with four boundaries, became Hitch's first test wicket when he bowled him. The final wicket added a further 10 before the innings ended, with Douglas having Carter caught in the slips. The final total of 133 was a massive disappointment for the home fans given the placid nature of the pitch. Once again, Foster and Barnes were the destroyers, with Foster claiming another Fifer, whilst Barnes took three. There was still an hour's play left in the day as Hobbs and Rhodes commenced. Australia started with their most incisive bowlers Cotter and Horden, but they had little impact. Callaway and Matthews were also given opportunities, but Rhodes and Hobbs played flawless cricket, heading to the end of the day with the partnership sitting at 49, only trailing by 84 runs. Day 2 opened with McCartney on hand to field in place of Ransford. Hobbs and Rhodes resumed with little fuss and ground down the bowling. Matthews gave them the most trouble, keeping a good length that made him difficult to hit. Hobbs was able to bring up a chanceless half-century, continuing his good form from the previous match. Horton was brought on, and this tempted Hobbs into a big shot. He skied the ball into the outfield, where Hill ran hard and got a hand to the ball, but couldn't complete the catch. The Hunters raised as the English continued to whittle down the deficit. They began to play more expansive cricket, hitting Callaway for 9 and over before giving Horden similar treatment. Rhodes brought up his own 50 just before the break, with the English having taken the lead on 138. Resuming with his own score in 81, Hobbs pushed on towards his second consecutive century. At the other end, Rhodes square cut Cotter to the boundary, but later in the same over he was trapped LBW for 59. 
He batted for two and a half hours and shared a 147 run stand with Hobbs. He was replaced by Gunn. At the other end, Hobbs hit Cotter for four to move into the 90s before boundaries off minute then Matthews took him to his century, well received by the crowd. Gunn regularly ticked the scoreboard over. The 200 was raised before the second wicket fell, with Gunn miss hitting Cotter to mid on where Hill ran in and took a smart catch. He departed for 29, with Hearn coming in at 2 for 206. Cotter could have had a third wicket, but Horden dropped Hobbs in the slips. Hobbs' luck continued, with Trumper also shelling a chance. This allowed him to go to tee with his score on 133, with the English almost 100 ahead at 2 for 230. Hobbs started after the break with consecutive boundaries off Armstrong. Soon after he brought up his 150 with another big shot off the same bowler. However, he lost his partner Hearn, who had battled his way to 12 in 40 minutes. Caught at square leg off Callaway. Mead arrived with the score at 260. Hobbs was taking a lot more risks than earlier in the innings, cutting minute through the slips where Cotter managed to get a finger to the ball. As the bowlers began to tire, both batsmen took advantage, with Mead stepping out to hit Horden to the cover boundary, whilst Hobbs off drove Matthews to long off, bringing up the 300. Hobbs, who had batted for almost the entire day, was finally out just before stumps, edging minute to Horden in the slips. He made 187 in five and a half hours with 15 boundaries. He received a standing ovation from the members as he exited the ground. Foster came in before stumps were drawn and over later. The English score stood at 4 for 327, a lead of 194. Following the rest day, England resumed with Mead on 31 and Foster yet to score. The English started slowly, only scoring 15 singles in the first half hour of play. Mead survived a stumping chance when Carter missed the ball, but was out shortly afterwards, hitting one back to Horden to be dismissed for 46. This brought Douglas to join Foster. The two amateurs in the English side built another partnership. Douglas surprised many by being the more enterprising of the two early quickly racing into double figures and stepping out to slap Matthews to recover. Foster was far more circumspect, only scoring 11 runs in his first hour at the crease. He picked up the pace in the half hour before lunch, going to the break at 31, with the English having moved their score on to 398. The Australians could make little headway after lunch, with the batsmen continuing to raise their scoring rates. Sharp running and the odd boundary kept the total increasing, with Foster bringing up a half century with a clip to fine leg. The partnership reached 85 before Douglas was dismissed for 35, chopping Minute onto his stumps a ball after hitting a boundary. He was replaced by Woolley, who took the score past 450 before Foster fell, clean ball by Armstrong for 71, with six boundaries. Smith joined Woolley and the two pushed the total towards 500. To make matters worse for the Australians, Trump had suffered a knee injury trying to field a ball and had to leave the field. With the Australian 12th man already on the field for Ransford, Englishman Vine fielded for the Australians. Woolley was dismissed with the total at 492 for 20, clean bowled by a fast one from Cotter. Smith took the total to 501 before he was out, caught by his teammate Vine off Cotter. The innings ended the next over, with Horton claiming Hitch without addition. Cotter was the most successful bowler with four wickets, but went for 125 runs in doing so, whilst Horton was punished, with his two wickets costing him 143 runs. The English had a mammoth lead of 368 runs. The Australians already had question marks over the ability of Ransford and Trumper to bat given their injuries, so most spectators were expecting an innings loss. Callaway and Bardsley again opened the innings. Their tormentors Barnes and Foster took up the attack, but this time without success as the openers navigated the early threat. Both batsmen found the boundary and the score bill with regularity. Foster hit the pads of Bardsley for half appeals a couple of times, but this was as close to a wicket as they came. The stand reached 39 before Douglas changed the bowlers to himself and Hearn. Hearn copped some punishment, going for 19 in three overs, helping bring up the Australian 50. The total was raised to 86 before the first chance was offered, with Bardsley edging Douglas to slip, where Foster dropped a regulation chance. 
In Douglas's next over, without addition to the score, Callaway became the first wicket, chopping a ball onto his stumps. He'd made 37 and was replaced by Carter. The two batsmen were able to see out the rest of the day without loss, ending on 1 for 96. Bardsley was well set on 46, but the Australians still had a deficit of 272 to contend with going into day 4. The Team 100 came up in the first over of the day, with Bardsley then bringing up his half-century in the second. Both batsmen found the boundaries off Barnes and Foster and took the total on to 122 before the second wicket fell, with Bardsley inside edging onto his wicket off Foster, departing for 63. He was replaced by Hill, who started with two boundaries and an over off Barnes. Carter was also looking comfortable, seeing off the opening bowlers and forcing Douglas to cycle through other options. Hill did the bulk of the scoring, quickly racing to 30 and passing Carter. The score moved to 174 by lunch, with Hill on 37 and Carter 28. The Australians resumed after lunch still trailing by 194. Hill and Carter continued to bat positively, with first Hill and then Carter bringing up their half-centuries in quick time. The pair were able to bring up a century partnership soon after, taking the total past 220. Hill was particularly aggressive against the bowling of Hearn, stepping out almost every ball and consistently hitting him to the outfield. Carter also found the boundary on multiple occasions. Eventually Douglas turned to Woolley, his seventh bowler. Hill hit his first ball for four, but later in the over Woolley struck. Having Carter caught behind for 72, made in three hours of eight boundaries. This broke a 157-run stand which had taken the Australian total to 279 and reduced the deficit to double figures. Armstrong joined Hill, who was on 84. The home crowd was hoping for a century from their hero. He batted cautiously through the 90s, but when he reached 98, he skied a ball to square leg off Barnes and was caught by Hitch. This was his sixth score in the 90s. No other Test player to this stage had fallen in this range more than twice. Minute came to the crease at 4 for 303. He was lucky to survive a close LBW shout off Foster when he was on one. Both batsmen were struggling somewhat, although the bowlers weren't creating any chances. Eventually, Minnick got hold of Douglas, clouding him to the leg boundary. Armstrong at the other end had laboured in making 25 in 80 minutes at the crease before he was bowled by Douglas. Horton came to the wicket and helped Minnick see the Australians through the stumps. Minnick played many upper shots, but was fortunate to avoid the fielders. The Australians ended the day at 5 for 360, with Minnick on 38 still needing eight runs for the English to bat again. Before a run was scored on the fifth day, Minnett was dismissed, caught at mid-off off Barnes in the opening over. Three runs later, Horden tamely patted a ball back to the same bowler, leaving the Australians still needing five runs to make the English bat again, with only three wickets in hand. Matthews then joined Ransford, whose injured thumb had recovered to an extent. Both Barnes and Foster were now bowling leg theory with all but one fielder on the offside, making scoring difficult. Matthews played risky cricket, although did find the boundary through the field on occasion. The Australians moved into the lead as Douglas was tried and Barnes changed approach to off theory, but through mostly singles, the Australian pair were able to take the total up past 400, going to the lunch break on 422. After lunch, Matthews continued attacking the leg theory bowling, strictly skying one over the keeper's head for four. Ransett also struck Barnes to the cover boundary, with the English starting to fret over the growing partnership. However, Hitch was brought on and managed to separate the two, clean bowling Ransford for a ground-out 38, having shared an 84-run stand with Matthews. He was replaced with Cotter at 8 for 447. Matthews brought up his first Test 50 to applause before Cotter struck three consecutive boundaries off Hitch. The end came soon after, though, as first Matthews was clean bowled by Barnes at 53, before Cotter received the same fate one run later, leaving a hobbling trumper who had come to the wicket at number 11 not out. Barnes was the most successful bowler, claiming five wickets with Douglas taking two. The Australian innings ended on 476, setting the English to the total of 109 for victory. 
Hopes of the Australians defending the small total were raised in the second over, when Horden trapped Hobbs LBW for three. However, on a wicket that was still good for batting, Rhodes and Gunn combined to snuff out any hopes of a famous Australian victory. Rhodes used Cotter's pace to hit him for multiple boundaries, leading to the speedster being replaced. When the score reached 51, Rhodes should have been out, but Armstrong dropped into the slips off Horden. Runs flowed from then on, quickly racing to 100 and reducing the target to single figures. Consolation wickets to Callaway, having Gunn caught for 45, and Matthews, dismissing Hearn for two, only delayed the inevitable as Rhodes brought up his 50 and the victory with a pull shot for four. With that, the English took a 2-1 lead in the series. The next test was set to start in February and was to be played in Melbourne. Before then, the English visited Tasmania, winning both the first-class matches there comfortably. In the second, Frank Woolley made an extraordinary 305 in under four hours, with 43 fours and two sixes in an innings victory. They then made their way to Melbourne, winning against Victoria by eight wickets, with Hearn and Douglas scoring centuries, although Armstrong was defined with 120 not out in the second Victorian innings. Meanwhile, the Australian public were now demanding a response from their side. Some even advocated for the recall of retired players such as Monty Noble and Hugh Trumbull to help with the bowling difficulties the side was facing. The debate over who would select the manager for the 1912 Tour of England was also compounding issues between the board and the players. Six leading players, Hill, Armstrong, Trumper, Ransford, Cotter and Carter, all signed a letter to the board, indicating that, unless the players were able to select their own manager, they would be unavailable for selection on the tour. The board responded on the 2nd of February, reiterating that, under the changed constitution, the board retained the right to select a manager. The board and the players had now reached an impasse. Tensions were high leading up to the selection meeting for the fourth test, which was taking place on the 3rd of February in the offices of the New South Wales Cricket Association. Prior to the meeting, McAllister had telegraphed Hill, suggesting he drop himself from the side. As soon as the meeting began, McAllister continued this line of attack. Hill was in no mood to take this from McAllister, telling him that he was no judge of cricket. McAllister then declared that he was a better captain than any of Armstrong, Trump or Hill, and that Hill was the worst captain in living memory. This was the last straw for Hill, standing up and saying to McAllister, you've been asking for a punch all night and I'll give you one. Hill then reached across the table, slapping or punching, depending on the sources, McAllister in the face. The two then grappled around the room for almost 20 minutes. The third selector, Iredale, and board secretary Smith, the only others in the room, were unable to separate the two. Eventually, Hill got the upper hand in the scrap, with McAllister dangerously close to falling out of an open window. At this point, Smith managed to grab Hill's coattails and pull him away, whilst Ardale held back McAllister. Both men had lost blood, with McAllister's face covered in bruises and cuts. McAllister was then pushed out the door and barred re-entry. Hill immediately declared that he would resign as captain, which Smith asked him to put into writing. It was then decided that Ardale and McAllister would pick the side for the fourth test. Amazingly, after all that had transpired, Hill was retained both as a player and a captain. The only change that was made was removing McCartney, who had been 12th man in the previous test and someone Hill had been advocating for, and replacing him with John McLaren, a fast bowler from Queensland. The news of the brawl spread fast and was reported on the front page of many newspapers. Most of the public sided with the players, with Hill in particular being cheered by the fourth test crowd as he came out for the toss. Heavy rain had made the pitch soft and, when he won the toss, Douglas had no hesitation in bowling first. The English had made one change with Vine coming in for his test debut in place of Hitch, who had suffered a slight strain. The Australians made no change, with McLaren as 12th man. There had been a thought to play him, but his role as a strike breaker in Queensland had led to Victorian unions declaring that they would pick at the ground if he was in the 11, with the selectors opting to keep him on the sidelines. Horton was sent up to open with Callaway, 
The pitch seemed to lack life early on, and the openers were able to get settled against the bowling of Foster and Barnes, with Callaway getting away the first boundary in the latter's first over. An appeal for court behind against Horden, and some up shots through the slips from Callaway were the closest English got to a wicket. The two were able to get the total to 40 before the first change was made, with Foster replaced by Woolley. Callaway was doing the bulk of the scoring and took the total past 50 before he cut Woolley uppishly, with Hearn taking the catch at third man. The next over saw Horden bowl by Barnes without a run added. The two had put on 53 for the first wicket, but had thrown it away as lunch was taken at the fall of Horden's wicket. Trumper joined Bardsley after the break. Trumper did all of the scoring, seemingly handling the attack with ease. Bardsley had struggled with Foster's angle all series, and once the game was done in, being bowled for a painful 20-minute duck. He was replaced by the Australian captain, who once again received a tremendous ovation from the crowd. Soon after though, Trumper departed for 17, bowled by Foster one ball after he dispatched him to the point fence. Armstrong then could only manage seven, with Barnes clipping the top of his off-bail. The Australians were now in dire straits at 5 for 83. Minnett joined Hill, and the two recovered the inning somewhat, with Hill bringing up the 100 with an all-run four. Minnett was living dangerously, playing uppishly and just out of the reach of fielders, but also played some powerful straight drives to the boundary. The score reached 124 before Hill was out, caught on the boundary off Barnes for 22. He was replaced by Ransford, who watched Minnett hit consecutive boundaries off Barnes. The two were able to take the Australians through to T at 6 for 146, with Minnett having moved to 38. Ransford only added a single to his T score before a loose shot saw him caught in the slips off Foster. Matthews came to the crease in front of his home crowd, with Minnett taking 9 of a Foster over to bring up his 50. He was out soon after, however, calling the boundary off the same bowler. He made 56 with 6 boundaries. Soon after, Matthews fell for 3, caught off Barnes. This left the Australians at 9 for 170. Cotter did his usual hitting, finding the boundary three times off Foster and putting on 21 with Carter. But when Barnes claimed the final wicket by bowling Cotter, the Australians ended their innings on 191. Once again, Barnes and Foster were the destroyers, claiming five and four wickets respectively for the innings. There was 40 minutes left in the day for the English to negotiate. Hobbs and Rhodes should have been separated in the opening over, with Callaway catching the edge of Rhodes' bat, only for the balls to sail between Trumper and Ransford in the slips. The two batsmen were scoring quickly, taking 26 runs off four overs from Cotter. Both were not out at the end of the day, putting on 54 runs before the close. The second day was a clear and sunny Saturday, attracting a record crowd of 32,000 spectators. The batsmen started cautiously, treating the biggest threat in Horden with great deal of respect. Very few risks were taken as the two looked to grind the Australians down. Rhodes gave half a chance on 28, but Trumper misjudged the catching opportunity. Soon after, Hobbs brought up his 50 with a clip to fine leg for four, while soon after he brought up the century with a straight drive boundary off a Callaway no ball. Hill rotated his bowlers, but all were coming in for punishment, with Rhodes finding runs easy off Matthews, whilst Hobbs clotted Cotter for consecutive boundaries. The two were able to take the total at lunch to 137, with Hobbs on 86 and Rhodes 48. Horton and Cotter contained the runs for a while after lunch, but once they were changed, the score quickly began to rise. Hobbs was able to bring up his century, his third in consecutive tests, with a single off Horden. Next over, he should have been stumped off Matthews, but Carter missed the opportunity. Rhodes, who had also passed 50 by this stage, took the total up past 185, a new record for an opening partnership in tests, surpassing Hayward and Jackson in 1899. They were applauded for this effort, and once again soon after, when they went past the Australian's total, the run soaring continued unabated past 200 as Rhodes also approached the century mark. He achieved the milestone, his first in test, which came with a cut shot off Horden for four. This was a remarkable achievement for a man who had started in test cricket as a number 11. T was taken shortly after, with the English on 249, 
leading by 58 runs. Hobbers on 138 and Rhodes 102. The desire for runs amongst the partnership was not sated post-team. 50 run runs coming in the first 40 minutes after the break. The ground fielding remained good, but the bowling was toothless. Hobbs made his way to the 170s before finally miscuing one, pulling Horton to Cotter at square leg. However, the fielder couldn't complete the catch. This didn't hurt the Australians too much, as two balls later Hobbs was superbly caught down the leg side by Carter. He was dismissed for 178, made in four and a half hours with 22 boundaries, and sharing a stand of 323 with Rhodes, a record for the first wicket that would last until 1948. Gunn came to the crease and took advantage of the tired bowling, helping to put on 47 more runs with Rhodes before the close of play, with Callaway dropping Rhodes in the slips right before stumps. The English ended the day on 1 for 370, with Rhodes on 157 and Gunn 22, leading by 179 runs. Following the rest day, play resumed on the Monday for day 3. Despite their massive lead already, the batsmen played Dow cricket, scoring only 30 runs in 50 minutes. Callaway attempted to tempt him bowling wide outside off stump, but Rhodes left everything alone. He managed to move past Hobbs' score by a single before he finally fell, getting a faint edge off minute and being caught behind. His 179 had taken six and a half hours and included 15 boundaries. The old adage of one brings two came true as Hearn was out for a duck in the same over, caught by Armstrong from an edge that ricocheted off Carter's glove. This saw the English go to lunch at 3 for 425, with Gunn having brought up his half century. Gunn was joined by Foster following the break, with the new batsman starting with the boundary off the first ball he faced from Cotter. Amateur Foster batted with a lot more freedom than his professional teammates, raising his score quickly and seeing off Cotter and Matthews, going at a run a minute to race to 25. Horton was brought on and slowed Foster somewhat, whilst Gunn was dismissed by Armstrong at the other end for 75. Once again, two wickets were claimed in an over, as the English captain also fell to Armstrong, caught at silly point for a duck. Woolley then joined Foster with the English total of 5 for 486. Armstrong, more than anyone had all innings, managed to trouble the English batsman and, whilst the score rattled along at the other end, he kept it tight, gaining the wicket of Foster shortly after he brought up his 50. Mead joined Woolley, who had made his way into the 20s, and T was taken shortly after, with the English at 6 for 522, a lead of 331. Cotter was tried once again following T, but Woolley played him easily, taking for 9 in his first over. Woolley then struck Armstrong for four before hitting him for the first six of the match over long on. This brought up his half century, but he was out shortly after for 56, caught at mid on off minute. Mercifully for the Australians, the final three wickets only added 24 more runs. Mead was bowled by Horton for 21, whilst Callaway and Horton shared the final two wickets. The English total of 589 was the highest total achieved by any side in an innings to this point in tests and gave them a lead of 398. The Australians had 15 minutes to survive and did so without losing either of Callaway or Carter, ending the day on none for eight. Few people expected that they would do well enough to make the English having to bat a game, with the visitors having one hand on the Ashes' urn. To make matters worse for the Australians, overnight rain had made the pitch far more difficult for batting than it had been for the English. Callaway fell early for five, caught behind in Barnes' first over of the day. He was replaced by Bardsley, who once again struggled with the bowling of Foster and was clean bowled for three. The Australians were now 2 for 20 as Trumper joined Carter. Barnes was bowling exceptionally well, only going for 5 runs in 10 overs. Carter broke his spell by guiding one through a 5-strong slip cordon to the fence before following up in the same over with a legside boundary. Douglas then brought himself and Hearn on. Trumper found Hearn's bowling more to his liking, striking him for a boundary, whilst Carter also moved his score on with more vigour. The two were able to make it to lunch at 2 for 76, with Carter on 38 and Trumper 20. Following lunch, Douglas had Carter caught in the slips without adding to his score. 
Hill came to the crease and once again received the support of the crowd, with a loud call of three cheers being heard. Trumper managed to cut Barnes to the boundary, but shortly after was clean bowled by the same bowler for 28, the fourth wicket falling at 86. Armstrong joined Hill and the two took the score past 100, but Armstrong was then bowled by a ball that kept low from Douglas for 11. Douglas continued to trouble the Australians, bowling Hill for a painstaking 11 as well as minute for 7. The Australians now had only three wickets remaining with only 117 on the board. Cotter played in his usual fashion, striking Douglas to the long on boundary before skying a ball off Foster to be caught for 8. Ransford and Horton combined for a while, putting on 29 for the ninth wicket, including taking Douglas to 20 runs in 2 overs, before Foster bowled Matthews. The final wicket took the Australians to 173 before Douglas ended the match by having Horden caught, with Ransford left 29 not out. This gave Douglas the figures of 5 for 46, with Foster adding 3 wickets to give him 7 for the match. The overall margin of an innings and 225 runs was one of the biggest ever seen in tests and confirmed England's dominance, guaranteeing them the ashes of the 3 run result, with one game still to play in Sydney. During the fourth test, the Australian Board of Control announced that Hill would not be receiving an invitation to tour England that year. They changed that stance soon after, inviting Hill, but not the other five signatories of the letter challenging the board's right to appoint a manager. Again, the newspapers were full of complaints towards the Board of Control and their actions towards the players. McElhone ran a campaign the Sydney papers against Hill and the others to try to turn public opinion, but this was ineffectual. The English had one more match before the fifth test, facing New South Wales in Sydney. They bowled the home side out for 106 in the first innings and took a lead of 209 into the second innings. Here, 41-year-old Sid Gregory carried his bat for 186 in the New South Wales innings, setting a total of 195 for victory, a target the English achieved two wickets down. With the series lost, the Australians made four changes for the final test. Cotter was dropped having been unable to take a wicket in the previous match, whilst Bardsley was spared having to face up to his tormentor Foster. Callaway and Matthews were also dropped. In their place came McLaren, 12th man in the previous test, for his debut. Gregory was rewarded with his performance in the tour match with a recall, whilst Hazlitt was also brought in for his first match in the series. The final spot went to a man whose proposed selection had caused much of the angst between the selectors, culminating in the Hill-McAllister brawl. Therefore, Charlie McCartney would finally take his place in the Australian team. The victorious English made one change, strengthening their bowling by bringing in Hitch in place of Mead. Despite being a dead rubber, interest was still high in the fifth test, especially of all the backroom issues that the Australian team had been having. Douglas won the toss and chose to bat, opening with a record-setting pair of Hobbs and Rhodes. They faced up to debutant McLaren and the slow left armers of McCartney. Rhodes struggled with McCartney, and when the score reached 15, he was bowled off his pads, having made eight. He was replaced by a gun. Runs were difficult to come by, with McLaren getting some balls to rise sharply. Horton also proved a challenge when he was introduced, leading to many plays and misses. Despite this, the two were able to take the score past 50. Hobbs was now looking comfortable and lifted Horton back over his head for four. However, shortly after, he was caught on the boundary attempting to repeat the stroke. He was out for 32, with a score on 69. Hearn replaced him and helped see through to lunch with a score at 75, with Gunn having moved to 28. Following lunch, the Australians quickly achieved another breakthrough. Hearn pulled Armstrong to square leg, when McCartney took a diving two-handed catch to his right. Foster joined Gunn, who then moved into the 40s with a square cut for four off Hazlitt. There was some dangerous running between the two, with both Gregory and Hill scoring direct hits with the batsmen only just in their ground. The total moved past 100, mostly in singles, with Gunn bringing up his 50. Soon after, Foster was well stumped by Carter after stepping out and missing a wide ball from Hazlitt. He made 15 and departed with the score at 4 for 114. Douglas replaced him, but almost lost Gunn soon after, who was dropped after playing four successive maidens off Armstrong. 
This didn't cost the Australians though, as shortly after he was stumped for 52 off Horden. The English had now lost half their side for 125 runs. Woolley arrived and nearly ran at his captain through poor running, but fortunately for the batsman, Ransford misfielded. The English were able to make their way to tee at 5 for 132. Woolley was much more aggressive against the Australian slow bowlers than his predecessors, lifting Horden to the square leg boundary. This inspired his captain, who did the same thing to Armstrong. Armstrong was then taken off, having bowled 22 consecutive overs for only 29 runs. His replacement, Minnett, was immediately hit to the boundary by Woolley. Douglas, concerned about the fielders gathered around him, hit over the top, but was caught in the outfield off Horden for 18. Woolley continued to be aggressive in partnership with the new batsman Vine. Another boundary hit over Horden's head took Woolley into the 40s, whilst his 50 was brought up with a streaky boundary through the slips. The English were able to make it to the end of the day without further loss, ending on 6-204, with Woolley on 62 and Vine 8. Play was slow at the start of day 2. McCartney bowled four consecutive maidens before a run was scored off him. Feeling the pressure, Woolley flashed Hazlitt to cover, where the ball flew through the usually safe hands of Gregory. Horton was brought on and immediately relieved the pressure, with a half-tracker and full toss to Woolley, both of which were dispatched to the boundary. Vine also started to attack, hitting Hazlitt to the mid-off boundary. The score moved past 250, with the 100 partnership coming up soon after. Woolley moved through the 90s with aggressive cricket and brought up his maiden test century with a push into the offside. Vine also reached the 30s with an edge through the slips. Lunch was taking the English on 6 of 292, with Woolley 111 and Vine 35. Woolley started after lunch with two legside boundaries off Hazlitt. Next over, however, Vine was dismissed, yorking himself against Horden. He was out for 36, having shared a 143-run stand with Woolley. Horden then bowled an identical ball to the next batsman Smith and bowled him for a golden duck. Things were not 8 for 305. Barnes survived the hat-trick ball and hit a boundary in the same over, but was out to Hazlitt in the next. Final man Hitch managed five before Hazlitt ended the innings on 324. Woolley was left undefeated on 133, made in three and a half hours with 12 fours. Horden was the pick of the bowlers with five for 95, whilst Hazlitt claimed three for 75 on his return to the side. Trumper and Gregory opened for the Australians, with Gregory starting with two off a misfield. The score moved to 17 before the first wicket fell, with Trumper superbly caught in the slips by Woolley off Barnes. This brought Hill to the crease, who received a standing ovation, clearly demonstrating whose side the Sydney crowd were on. Gregory drove the scoring through a series of late cuts, whilst Hill powerfully struck Barnes through mid-off for four. Hitch was brought on in place of Foster and was tidy, only going for three runs in his first five overs before catching the edge of Hill's bat, dismissing him for 20. This brought Armstrong to the crease at 2 for 59. Douglas replaced Barnes, but both batsmen found him easy to score off. Gregory had moved to 32 before he got a thin edge off Douglas and was caught at slip. Minute was next in, but only lasted six balls before slicing Hitch to third man to be out for a duck. Ransford joined Armstrong with a score of 4 for 82, still trailing by 242 runs. The two batsmen batted carefully, but took advantage of some loose balls from Hitch, with Armstrong twice finding the boundaries and moving into the 20s. Foster and Barnes returned to the bowling crease, but Ransford welcomed the former with a fiercely hit boundary to square leg, before another off Barnes brought up the 50 partnership. Just as the Australians were looking to stumps, Armstrong was struck in front by Barnes and was given LBW for 33. Carter arrived at the wicket, but the Australians then successfully appealed against the light, ending the day's play with the Australians on 533, still behind by 191 runs. Within minutes of leaving the field, rain began to tumble down on the uncovered pitch. The rest day saw a thunderstorm drench the ground. The rain continued through the night and all Monday morning, seeing day three washed out. Play was able to resume on day four, but the nature of the pitch had changed significantly. This was shown off the first ball from Foster, 
which rose sharply off the pitch, catching the shoulder of Ramsford bat and having him caught a point for 29. This brought McCartney to the crease. He played attacking cricket, hitting Barnes twice to the leg boundary. Carter also found the leg boundary off Foster and received some luck when he was dropped at slip off Barnes. He was dropped again, this time a point off the same bowler. But when he hit to mid on in the same over, no mistake was made, with Carter falling for 11. Woolley was then brought on, with McCartney hitting a return catch to him to depart for 26. The final two wickets only added a run between them, with Horden bowled for a duck, whilst Hazlitt was run out by Hobbs at cover for one. This ended the Australian innings at 176, with Barnes claiming three wickets, whilst Hitch and Woolley both took two. The English took a lead of 148 into their second innings. Despite the conditions, the Australian bowlers were able to cause a little difficulty to the openers, with Rhodes and Hobbs seeing England to lunch, none down for 20. Little changed after the break, with Hobbs scoring freely off Hazlitt, striking him for two boundaries. Rhodes also found run scoring easy, with the score moving to 59 before Hill made a double change, bringing on Horden and Armstrong. This didn't have an immediate impact as both batsmen found the boundary off Horden. However, they both departed when the score reached 76. Hobbs was superbly caught low down by Hazlitt off Horden for 45, whilst in the following over, Rhodes was trapped LBW by Armstrong. Gunn and Hearn combined, with Hearn striking three quick boundaries to help take the total past 100. However, his cameo innings ended on 18 when he was bowled by Horden. Foster could only manage four before he was bowled, becoming McLaren's first test wicket. Douglas, coming in at four for 110, was nearly bowled first ball by Horden, but held on as the teams went to team. Following the resumption, Gunn did most of the scoring, extending the English lead. Douglas could only manage eight runs before he was dismissed, leaving a ball from Armstrong that swerved in and bowled him. First inning century maker Woolley replaced him at 546. At the other end, Gunn was seemingly able to bring up his 50, an excellent effort on the difficult wicket. Woolley wasn't batting with the same freedom as in the first innings and could only manage 11 before he edged Hazlitt to slip. Gunn followed eight runs later when he was clean bowled by Horden, having made 61 in just over two hours with six boundaries. The English were now 7 for 186. Vine and Smith took the total past 200 before Smith attempted a big hit off Horden and was bowled. Barnes joined Vine and attempted to play for stumps, but on the last ball of the day, Barnes became Horton's fourth wicket to be bowled. The English ended the day on 9 for 209, leading by 357. The innings didn't last long on the fifth day, with the final pair adding only five runs before Hitch was caught in the outfield off Armstrong. The catcher, Ransford, pocketed the ball as a memento of what might be his last test match, given the stance he had taken against the board. The Australian bowling was once again led by Horton, who claimed five wickets to give him his second 10 fur of the series, both of which were achieved in Sydney. Armstrong also claimed three wickets. The English total of 214 meant the Australians had a target of 362 to achieve a consolation victory. The pitcher recovered from the rain and was now slow and easy, raising hopes of success. Trumper and Gregory opened and started confidently, with Trumper hitting many balls into the outfield, with good fielding by Vine preventing most of them from going for boundaries. Foster operated with leg fury, but the experienced heads handled it comfortably, finding gaps to keep the scoreboard ticking over. Douglas came on for Barnes with a score on 42 and was immediately cut to the boundary by Trumper, whilst Gregory repeated the stroke soon after, bringing up the 50. The runs required were soon reduced to under 300, with the Australians going to lunch without loss on 70. Following the break, Gregory took his score onto 40 before a ball rose sharply from Barnes and caught the shoulder of his bat, where it was caught by the keeper. The opening stand of 88 had given the Australians a solid platform as Hill came to the crease. He received another massive ovation and, according to the umpire, took strike with tears in his eyes. He struggled to score off Foster's leg theory, whilst Trumper managed to get away a few late cuts at the other end. Just as the total went past 100, Hill was out unluckily, edging a ball onto his body, only for it to roll against the stumps and dislodge a bale.
He departed for eight as Armstrong joined Trumper. The set batsman hit consecutive boundaries off Barnes to bring up his half century, but was then out for 51, fantastically caught by Willie off Barnes low down to his left. Minna joined Armstrong at three for 117, still needing 245 for victory. The new man started with an edge through slips for four, before Rain sent the players from the ground for 22 minutes. The players returned and added another 10 runs before the scheduled tea break was taken, with the crowd resenting the time wasted. Following tea, Minnett struck three consecutive boundaries off Barnes, which brought up the 150. At the other end, Foster was bowling extreme leg theory, so much so that only three balls in three overs was played by the batsman. Douglas and Hitch came on to bowl, but Minnett was harsh on the latter, striking to the point and long off fences. Armstrong was letting his partner do most of the scoring, but he was still able to turn the strike over regularly. Willie was brought on before the end of the day and nearly struck, with the usually safe Hobbs dropping a sitter off Minnett at cover point. Armstrong appealed against the light soon after, seeing the end of the day. With Minnett on 49 not out and Armstrong 23, the Australians total of 3 for 193 when they only required 169 for victory, leading to many believing a grandstand finish was on the way. Unfortunately for the Australians, the weather had other ideas. For the second time in the test, a day's play was washed out. This meant that, when play started on the seventh day, the pitch was a glue pot. Play didn't resume until 1pm, surprising Armstrong, who had assumed that there would be no play for the day and had stayed away. Hill sent a taxi which got the biggest train back in time just for the resumption of play. He started the scoring of a boundary to leg off Barnes in the opening over. Minnett brought up his 50 with single off Woolley, raising 200 in the process. Due to the delay starting, lunch was taken soon after, allowing time for the crowd to build. After lunch, Minnett struck Barnes to the boundary, but lost Armstrong for 33, bold attempting a big drive off Barnes. This gave Barnes his 100th test wicket. The two had shared a 92-run stand as Ransford arrived at 4 for 209. Ransford struck Woolley for two boundaries, but was then dismissed by the same bowler with a ball that ripped off the pitch to clean bowling. McCartney joined Minnett, but the latter was out shortly after, with Woolley taking another magnificent catch low down off Barnes. He'd made 61 with 9 boundaries. The Australians are now fallen to 6 of 231, still needing 131 for victory. McCartney and Carter then stopped the rot for a time. Rhodes was introduced, but McCartney found him to his liking, striking for two boundaries in an over. This helped drop the runs required below 100. Another boundary from McCartney came off Foster, but at 278 he was dismissed, caught off Foster for 27. Carter followed nine runs later for 23, caught behind square off Foster. This left the Australians at eight for 287. Horden followed without addition, run out off a suicidal run attempt by Hobbs. Another five runs were added before the match was completed, with Foster claiming his fourth wicket, having Hazlitt caught at square leg. The Australians ended their innings with 292 runs, going down by 60. Barnes also joined Foster in taking four wickets for the innings, whilst Woolley's superb game saw him add four catches in the innings to go with his century. The Ashes were back in English hands with an emphatic 4-1 win, their best ever result against Australia. Because the final test had gone on for so long, the last tour match against South Australia ended up being cancelled. Across the entire tour, the English had only been beaten once against Australia in the first test. A fantastic result, especially given they had lost their nominal captain Warner after one tour game. The victory in the test series was driven by the bowling of Barnes and Foster, who took 34 and 32 wickets respectively, with Barnes' control of length and Foster's use of extreme leg theory to strangle Australian batsmen, giving them great rewards. Douglas provided good support in taking 15 wickets, whilst Woolley chipped in with important breakthroughs. The batting was arguably as impressive, with Hobbs leading the way, scoring three centuries amongst his 662 runs at 83. He was ably supported by his opening partner at Rhodes, who scored 463 runs at 58, whilst Gunn, Hearn and Woolley each averaged over 35. 
How much the Australians were affected by the boardroom machinations can't be quantified, but their inability to put up consistent performances prevented them from being a tougher opponent. Six English batsmen averaged more than the top Australian performer Armstrong, who scored 324 runs at 32, whilst debutant Minnett scored 305 runs in the series. Aging stars Hill and Trumper each had one or two good performances, but were otherwise disappointing, with Trumper scoring the Australians' only century. The bowling was arguably worse. Horton performed the best with 32 wickets at 24, but 22 of those came in the two Sydney tests, going at over 40 in the other three tests. Connor lacked penetration, taking 12 wickets at 45 in his four tests, whilst no other Australian bowler took more than nine wickets. Horton decided against touring England, not wanting to disrupt his dentistry practice. He would drift away from cricket, playing his last first-class game in 1913, despite only being 30. Whilst he played only seven tests, he was Australia's first great googly bowler, taking 46 wickets and helping to inspire the next generation of Australian leg spinners, including his replacement in the New South Wales side, Arthur Maley. This also marked the last test for 27-year-old Vernon Ransford, one of the big six who had challenged the board. He had played every test since his debut in 1907-08 and was a consistent performer, averaging 37 with one century and seven fifties. He would continue to feature for Victoria, playing his last match in 1928, before going on to be the president of the Melbourne Football Club and secretary of the Melbourne Cricket Club, passing away at the age of 73 in 1958. The test also marked the final one for the Australian captain Clem Hill, Worn down by his conflict with the board, he retired from Test cricket at age 34, having been a feature of the Australian side for 16 years since his debut in 1896. Across his 49 tests, he had scored 3,412 runs, more than any other Test cricketer, at an average of 39. This included seven centuries as well as six scores in the 90s, whilst he captained Australia for 10 tests, winning five and losing five. Hill played Sheffield Shield for South Australia for the next two seasons and returned for some games in the early 1920s. He would move to Victoria and worked in horse racing for many years before he was thrown from a tram and killed in 1945, aged 68. The lack of unity in Australian cricket had cost him the ashes, as it seemed the board was hell-bent on driving anyone from the game who could question their authority. As such, they would send a much weakened squad to England that winter to attend the first triangular tournament that would feature Australia, England and South Africa. It was hoped by many that this series would provide a pathway forward for international competition. However, the weakness of the Australian squad and the weather was about to prove that belief a damp squib. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.